The Cat and Cloud podcast is sponsored by Steeped Coffee. Steeped Coffee is a new brewing method that combines specialty craft coffee into a single serving bag. You don't need a machine. You don't have to make a mess no matter where you are. All you have to do is add hot water. Each steep pack is individually sealed in nitrogen flush, so it stays fresh, and it's got this special immersion filter. And the filter is ultrasonic sealed, which means it's sealed together with no glue, no staples, so there's no weird stuff floating around in your coffee. Steeped is a benefit B Corp. They ethically source all their coffee. Their packaging is fully compostable, and they believe that business should be done without compromise. You can get your hands on Steeped Coffee at steepedcoffee.com. That's S-T-E-E-P-E-D coffee.com. Asking your local retail stores to start carrying Steeped or having your favorite roaster reach out and get in touch. If you happen to be in Santa Cruz, come on by any of the Cat and Cloud locations. We have it there for you. Basically, they're just doing their best to change the coffee industry and make your life more convenient with their pre-portioned, pre-ground innovation. So tell all your friends. What's good, everybody? It's Baca. Welcome to the Cat and Cloud podcast. This week, we got a really, really special and engaging episode. We have a guest on. His name is NQ. NQ is a national poetry slam champion. He's an award-winning poet. He's a multi-platinum songwriter. He's on Oprah's Super Soul 100 list of the world's most influential thought leaders. And we both joke about not knowing exactly what that means, but it sounds really, really impressive. He's the first spoken word artist to perform with Cirque du Soleil. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. But with a with a stack that heavy, you'd think that the person behind it is just like, you know, really big, crazy, huge personality. And he's definitely got a point of view. But one of the things that struck me as we chatted with him, he's so approachable, he's so easy to connect with, and so genuine and humble. And it was just a really amazing pleasure to have him on. He was referred to us by a friend of ours, Alex Benayan, who wrote the Third Door book. And NQ has a new book that he just dropped called Inquire Within. It's a collection of poems, and it is phenomenal. I'm not a poetry guy, but I absolutely enjoyed it. There's thoughts on how you connect with yourself. There's thoughts with the greater culture at large, and it's super, super engaging. One of the things about this interview is that the audio is a little sketchy at some points. We did it remote, and we don't usually do podcasts like that, but this whole COVID-19 thing has flipped us upside down as it has most other people. So if you listen to it for five minutes, you totally get used to it and you can play through. And I I think you're going to get a lot out of it if you do. So we're going to get into it. And thanks all for tuning in and keeping us as part of your regular rotation. I know it's tricky for everyone out there. And hopefully this brings you a little bit of connection and a little bit of joy in a strange time. All right, let's get to NQ. Would you be down to start us off? with a with a poem yeah um if you read the book was there anything that stuck out to you or do you think that that uh there's something that would be most of value to your listeners yes i have a one that i thought was really resonating with well a lot of them are resonating with where i'm at right now but if you would kick uh the jam it's called whistle that one was super it got me hyped all right great so this is a true story and um something that happened to me many years ago This one time, I saw a dude who worked for Vons collecting stacks of shopping carts in the parking lot with only one arm. 
Now, I should say that on this particular day, I had been feeling down about myself, depressed about some stupid shit, complaining in my head that I'm not as far along as I would like to be, that life is victimizing me. And mind you, I was buying food at the time to put into my car, to put into my house, to put into my fridge, to put into my mouth. And that's when I saw him, 10 carts deep, pushing them with one arm down the street, whistling. Now, I swear he was whistling. Do you know how happy I would have to be to spontaneously pucker up my lips like I was about to blow a kiss and open up a bit and push some air from my esophagus into a higher pitch? Shit. Really fucking happy. Anyway, back to this dude. The first thought I had, I'll admit, was a bit rude, but hear me out before you boo. See, I was confused, because if I was in his shoes and I got to choose a job, this would not be the job I'd choose. And I know that sounds hardcore, but honestly, this is one of the jobs that I would want two arms for. Now, that being said, this particular dude was an absolute gangster. The arm he had looked like it was strong enough to be the anchor on an oil tanker. Like it could have been Arnold Schwarzenegger's trainer back when he was starring in The Terminator. And it woke me up like the scent from a cup of Senka. So I went home and I wrote this poem as an ode to thank him. See, it really got me thinking about my situation. Why the fuck am I complaining? Our world is full of people maintaining no matter who you are or where you're from, we all have to wake up every day and accept the fact that we don't know where we'll go or why we've come. And that can cause confusion. So we distract ourselves and focus on amusement instead of self-improvement, a mutually agreed upon collective delusion. But with this much stimulus and this little understanding, it's no wonder we don't all just completely fucking lose it. Genius and insanity are closer than they seem. Your perspective is the difference between your nightmares and your dreams. Because if everything is energy and my body is a vessel, then my struggle is unique, but that doesn't make it special. And this dude here had the strength to up and whistle with a fistful of shopping carts that he guided like a missile. And it blew me away like a sneeze into a tissue that someone who was seemingly so many issues could be unequivocally so blissful while someone who's as lucky as I am could be self-creating problems by the list. So from this point on, if my thoughts start thinking that they're important or my feelings start feeling too distorted, I'm going to sort them into categories to see if I can change them. If I can, I'll simply make the moves to rearrange them. If I can't, I'll acknowledge them but won't engage them. I'll gather all my confidence and courage as I face them. And Yeah. Thank you. That was amazing. Thanks, man. So cool. Um, everybody at home's tripping now. Everybody at home's like just <laughs> loving it. They just snapped up to attention for sure. 
I so I've never read a um I don't know anything about poetry or the world that you come from and I don't think I've ever read a book that is strictly a collection of poems but the way and you can correct me if I'm wrong but the way yours kind of flows it's broken into kind of two parts and the way that I took it was the the first part are kind of it's almost internal facing. It's internal struggles, things that maybe you are going through or individual people would go through. And then the second part is almost more societal or kind of community-based, um, cultural, would you say? And then it was interesting how things just started to connect and connect and connect. I, I, I resonated with a lot of it, and I was just kind of wondering, like, what – why was it so important for you to write that? And maybe two part question, like how does it feel to just, it, it feels very exposing. I don't know if I had the courage to put everything out there like that. So I'm just curious about your thought process in making something like this. I mean, it's very easy to have a vulnerability hangover after you put something out that's so personal, but I've been doing it for years and I try to practice what I preach. And what I preach is that vulnerability is a strength. And it just depends upon how you uh, do it, like anything else in life, really. It's the intention behind it and the energy uh, that you're actually giving away when you're being vulnerable. If you're being vulnerable and you're saying, please accept me, you know, then you're still validating yourself by something that's outside of you. But if you're choosing to be vulnerable from a place of strength, then you're loving yourself unconditionally and uh, it can be a shortcut to decide whether or not you want to invest in a relationship or even a community. Because if you're being vulnerable with someone and they don't respond well, they're probably a fucking asshole. <laughs> then you don't have to hang out with them anymore. The book in general, you know, I know that the people that are listening to it won't get a chance to see what I'm showing you guys. But since we're on Skype, the cover of it is the branches of the tree mirroring the roots. And when you turn it upside down, the roots become the branches. But when you turn it to the side, it's the lungs. And mm -hmm. the two halves of the book are inhale and exhale. And as you said, which was really uh, insightful, and I appreciate you recognizing that, was that the first half is the personal poems. And uh, that's my poetic kind of hero's journey about uh, turning my pain into art and uh, learning the process of alchemy um, in my everyday life. I grew up in Santa Monica, my father was not around. My mom was a school teacher. And, uh, you know, it's just the process of me learning about who I was and coming to acceptance with that. And, uh, and then the second half is exhale and that's the social and political stuff. So it's change yourself, change the world. I know, go for it. Oh, yeah, this is the fun part about Skype is you got to kick in. Um, <laughs> it, it seems like in order to, to write the way you do, you you have to be incredibly aware in general. And I, I, I feel like that could be a double edged sword in, in the context of growing up, like to to be able to see so many things and to kind of question so many different pieces of life and to explore that. Uh, maybe maybe you say without like a father figure around or a father around what was what was that like in terms of gaining i guess confidence and just like navigating 
all that you see and feel as, as you're like working into becoming a poet, what, what was that experience like for you? I mean, it fucking sucked. <laughs> but uh, like anything else, you know, your kryptonite becomes your superpower. It, right. You know, so um, I would say I was always curious. That's where NQ came from. I was given that name by a buddy of mine when I was 15 years old because I was always asking questions. So NQ was originally short for inquiry. And then people just started calling me in Q and then everybody started calling me Q. And I literally rarely heard my real name after that. So it's not a nickname that I, you know, came up with in my twenties when I was trying to figure out how to brand myself. It's been a part of uh, my life since I was a kid and it's really a life philosophy. Um, and I don't know that I chose that. I think it chose me. Because I think when you feel like you don't belong, you question yourself and you question your environment. And yet that is the exact thing that I used uh, to funnel into my art. Was there a point in time where you kind of started to feel like you had a sense of belonging? One of the things that I have struggled with kind of all my life, and I'm just kind of starting to recognize that the problem part of the problem is me is that I never really felt like a really good sense of connection to others around me. And like the best way that I could put it, you know, when I was going in like through school, it was like, I, I was, I was too nerdy for the gangsters and too gangster for the too gangster for the nerds. Or now I feel like I'm too young for the grownups too, too old for the kids. Um, and I've just been starting to recognize like my place in that, like, were you always reflective in your poetry or did it start out of pure, I just think this could be cool. It wasn't like, I was like, this could be cool and I'll do that. I mean, I started out rapping when I was young and, uh, I was probably like 13 or 14 when I started freestyling and I just loved it. It's not like I was any good. I just loved the expression of uh, whatever was on your mind and heart coming out in that moment. And it's really a form of meditation, if you think about it, because when you're freestyling, you can't be anywhere else. The only thing that you can focus on is the next word and the next line. And so it really drops you into the now in a way that nothing else does, especially if you're battling against someone else and your adrenaline is up and it's a mental fight at that point. So you are so locked into the moment. And that's why people do all sorts of, you know, rock climbing. And I mean, it's in one way it's to commune with nature, but in another way, it's just to be in the moment because you don't have the luxury of not being in the moment. Um, I think actually in a weird way, you know, when I was in my twenties, I would, go to clubs or whatever. And you'd see if the guys didn't get laid by the end of the night, they were looking to fight often. And it's because those are the two things that put them in the moment, you know, sex or fight. You're not really thinking about anything else. And, uh, and so anyway, I started out that way. And then when I, uh, wound up at an open mic for poets, when I was 19 years old, I just fell in love with that environment, man. And all of us were very heavily, heavily influenced by poetry. It's called the Poetry Lounge in L.A. And they've gotten 350 people every single Tuesday night for over 20 years. And so people will come and literally line up around the block to watch people 
get up on stage and share a poem after signing up on a list. And this community became a family for me. And, you know, we won HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam. Uh, we were all on that together. We won the National Poetry Slam Championships. And, you know, eventually I woke up and realized I was more of a poet than an MC, And that was the beginning of the poetic journey. But I wanted to say one more thing based on what you said at the beginning, which is that it's kind of cool to be in the middle. I know that sometimes it feels like, well, there's no, you know, exact place that you belong in that way. But then you you get to connect with everyone. And you probably have an ability to do that because um, because you're not on one side or the other. You're you're kind of on the bridge. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting perspective on that. And I, I appreciate that. And it's it's interesting because when I was thinking those things a lot of the time, I would I would look at other people and be like, oh, man, they're so lucky. They have a place where they fully feel plugged in and people reciprocate. And on one end, it's like, I don't know how they feel. I don't know if they feel fully plugged in. They may just look that way to me. And and then on the on the other end, looking at myself and being like, you know, maybe one of the reasons that I don't have as tight a group as I wish I could have, with the exception of a few people, is that I'm not really sharing who I am at my core. I'm always like very, very guarded about what are people going to think of me or I'm not like them. And that keeps me from opening up when as I've been opening up more, and this is kind of a new journey that I'm on, I've found that people, no matter how differently I perceive them to be from me, are pretty open and accepting for the most part. And that's been really refreshing to me. Yeah, people are often guarded because they're afraid to get hurt, you know, and everyone's walking around afraid to get hurt. So why would you drop your guard if someone else has their guard up? But when you have actually like uh, the strength, that's the word, right? And, and the awareness to consciously drop your guard and to say, I'm going to take this moment to make an effort to connect in a deeper way. Most people respond. It, and it's surprising how much they want to drop their guard too, because it takes a lot of energy to walk around controlling what everyone else might or might not think about me. <laughs> you, uh, your perspective is really kind of hits home in this, it's really awesome way. And that it's, it's a freeing perspective and, and in a way you're, it's just, it is an obvious perspective, but what I've noticed is I, I live in a similar world or have lived in a similar word world as Chris did in that, you know, I played sports, but I was like the poorest person at my little private school. And, and I just, same thing, right. I was, I was in these different groups, but I never was exactly one of them. And I always looked at it kind of as a negative, mostly because I would see myself as, you know, not either smart enough because I was this crazy ADD kid or, or whatever, rich enough to hang with them. And, and I was on the welfare system. And what, what you're kind of helping me to, in this quick way, just reconcile is that I also got to be this interesting bridge, as you'd say, to, to connect to groups of people. And I oftentimes was the reason that these groups would come together mm -hmm. and, and, convene and, and, enter and entertain each other, have fun together, all those things. And while that wasn't and doesn't still feel self-serving, it's an interesting blessing that was in disguise that I'd never noticed 
unless somebody like you or people with different perspectives would be like, well, you're also a bridge to connect people because you never necessarily feel good. You do feel like a middle person. You feel like you're the outcast and not glue. And I think that's that is like a self-esteem issue. But it also does come down to like society at times and people with their own issues ultimately end up protecting themselves over you. And so you can get walked on growing up until you get that confidence you're talking about. So it's just something really interesting, I think, for people who are listening to notice or take time to try to notice in your quiet times. If those things are happening for you, try to flip that positivity into it. Yeah, it's a perception issue. And if you think about it, that's probably why, I mean, both of you guys are expressing this. So it's probably one of the reasons that your podcast is successful. It probably brings a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds who are coming to listen to you guys and you explore, you know, different issues through different guests. And if you weren't who you were, you know, I guarantee it's not that this maybe wouldn't be successful, but it would be successful in a different way. Um, so I think it is a perception issue and you think about it, it's not unfounded. I mean, in our DNA, it's still really old shit. I mean, when we were like, you know, hunter gatherers, if you were kicked out of your tribe, you would die. (laughs) I mean, seriously, like you're not going to survive on, you know, nature would get you or you'd see someone from another tribe and they just murder you. So there's a reason that, you know, people don't want to be outsiders. And yet we're also fundamentally missing uh, the miracle of being unique. I mean, every single person that you meet is so unique. It's like for you to even be alive, you were in a race against 40 million to like whatever, 250, 350 million sperm. And you won. And yet we like walk around constantly like we're mistakes. We're miracles, man. How did your journey of what you kind of talked about evolve over time? Like you started as an MC, rap battles transition into poetry. How did the content evolve with you as a as a person? Well, I don't think that anyone can teach you how to be an artist. They can teach you techniques of art but your voice will come from using it and from being around a community of other great artists. And so my community taught me a lot about uh, my content and taught me a lot about my performance style. You know, you start out, you write a poem, you write another poem, you write another poem, and then you get up and you do one and eventually you have 10 minutes. It's like a comedian. And then you have 15 minutes and then you can get up to holding a crowd for a half an hour. And I mean, now I can get up and do an hour and a half really easily. I mean, we've been traveling around the country and the world doing 70 shows a year, uh, at least before the quarantine. And uh, my content developed as I developed. There were many inflection points where I realized I wanted to consciously change what I was talking about. And I'll give you one specifically that I talk about in the book. Um, There was a, a breakup that I went through many years ago and I, was like, I'm gonna write my breakup poem. So I came back to my house and I sat down and right before I started writing this breakup poem, I was like, well, maybe I should like read over my other breakup poems first. So there were nine of them. (laughs) It wasn't nine different women, but there were nine different poems, which is basically 
like 30 minutes of material about relationships that hadn't worked out. I mean, think about how ridiculous that is. So then I sit down and I basically decide to read over all my old breakup poems. And I read the 30, 35 minutes in a row out loud to myself. And when I finished, I was like, oh, okay. I don't need to write a new breakup poem because all of my old breakup poems are applicable to my current breakup. So instead, I need to figure out why I'm continuing to make the same uh, lesson in a different disguise over and over again. Uh, and that was a big, I think, turning point for not only my life, but for uh, how I approached my material. Because it's not that I don't explore my darkness. You know, I don't ever want to not explore my pain or my anger or my you know, sadness or my jealousy, because that's a part of the human experience. And I think if you ignore that, you ignore being alive. But I didn't want to perpetuate that anymore. I didn't want to victimize myself. I didn't want to blame other people. Uh, I didn't want to explore it without a solution in the end. And from that point on, I decided that I was always going to explore my darkness, but I was always going to wind up in hope and an empowerment and an infinite possibility for not only myself, but also for my audience. In, in that I, and maybe I'm going way far, but you, you've kind of put together these storytelling workshops. Uh, and I was, I was interested at what point you kind of got excited about that perspective because it seems like your, your growth journey has also led to how can, how can I help others? And, and I kind of felt it right then. It was like, you've had the self-healing self-reflective, like, okay, I got to flip this to a positive. Have you, and, and when did you launch those? Um, I, I don't know what you call them workshops maybe is what you'd call it. And how long ago did you start doing those? And what have those been like for you? I mean, look, man, I didn't make any money until I was past 30. I was really surviving. Like that Vaughn's poem was written forever ago and I was still very much in survival mode at that time. It's hard to figure out how to monetize poetry. And then it's even more difficult to figure out how to monetize it and hold on to uh, whatever artistic integrity you have. And so, yeah, many, many years, man, I was just kind of getting by hand to fist. and. Uh, during that period of time, I had an opportunity to uh, do workshops at this place called ArtShare, which is in downtown L.A., and it taught uh, kids from all over that area in East L.A. poetry. And so they would come in every week, and I would do these classes for them. So I started out doing that, and then I ended up doing Upward Bound, which is for kids who are first-time college attendees. Nobody in their family has gone to college, and I started doing that for a few summers, and um, I did juvenile facilities and uh, libraries even. I mean, I did them all over the place and they were mostly for teenagers. And the responses were unbelievable. I mean, I would just watch people transform and find empowerment from these experiences that sometimes were shameful to them before my very eyes. And that's really what art at least has the potential to do when it's great. It just makes people feel less alone. And it allows a mirror into the human experience and it allows a window into transformation and healing. And then eventually I started doing it with adults and that was a very easy transition. And then now, I mean, we, we do it with uh, corporations as well. 
And I love doing it in those environments. I mean, I'm sure some people would be like, oh, you're, you're selling out. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's people. Like, why do you not want to connect with people in any way possible? I'll do shows anywhere for anyone as long as they don't tell me to say something that I don't believe in. If someone tells me to say something I don't believe in, I'm like, no, we're not aligned. I'm good. But I'll go into places where I don't necessarily agree with everything that they do. And I'll share my perspective and hopefully open them up to something new because what? I don't even necessarily agree with everything I do. I'm a work in progress. Everyone is. So I think I've over answered your question, but I'm just no, gonna- dude. I, I I'm just like I'm I'm hyped because there's this. I I resonate with your energy and your vibe like really deeply. I went I was I was looking up and I saw I don't know somewhere in Forbes you said a few things that are like really important to you and. And I just resonated so hard with them because some one, something you essentially alluded to is, you know, make sure you're doing what you love. But the reason is the reason that I love it so much because love inspires creativity and creativity and that art is poetry and business. And that's something that I, I know Chris and I like really align with. And, and you speak of freedom is something that like the freedom of your life to be free to make choices and to change who you are. And there's so much that you said there that it's kind of applicable to Chris and I and our business partner Charles journey as in our company right now. But it's also like truly authentic to who, and I can't fully speak for Chris, but what I believe Chris and I believe as well is that creativity, that human connection, that ability to grow and, and totally make mistakes, like, and, and not make them in an unapologetic asshole sort of way, but make them in a way where you're like, I'm a human. I should be able to make a mistake and rebound and learn and be a better person. And if you try to hold me to a higher standard than anybody else, like, that's something that I need to be okay with it being on somebody else's shoulders, not my own. Cause I'm never going to be perfect as leaders in business. And that's something that I'm, we're getting this opportunity to reconcile in this weird time and talk through and learn together. So I'm, I guess I'm just like both praising you and also really excited to hear you speak that way. Cause it's like, it's uh it's soul vibes, like connecting and like vibrating in me. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. I think that's the problem with the cancel culture thing. I think what's really great about it is we're calling people out on bad behavior and we're calling ourselves out on bad behavior. But if we cancel every single person for doing something wrong, there will be no one left. What are people reaching out to you for when you get a gig speaking to a really huge company? What's the catalyst for people bringing you in? I think they mostly just want to shake things up a little bit. Um, You know, there's definitely... Uh, great speakers that they can hire and uh, they come in and they motivate teams and inspire people to, I mean, in a perfect world, be the best versions of themselves. Um, And I do the same thing, but I do it through the Trojan horse of art. And I think I'm a little bit more of a provocateur as well, where I challenge myself and my audiences in a way that sometimes can be a little bit confronting um, but ultimately, as I said earlier, I always try to end in hope and empowerment and infinite possibilities, uh, because I don't just want to say, you know, everything's amazing. Go out and be amazing because I don't think that's reality. I mean, life is beautiful, but it's also ugly and we're experiencing all of it right now in this time period. But even other than this time period, In any moment, everything is happening. 
So we have to be able to hold more than one truth in our head at the same time. And I think that's probably one of the real issues with America right now is most Americans are not trained to do that. We are trained to say black or white, right or wrong. And I think that we need to train ourselves to look in the gray area because uh, I think that's when it, what's going to allow us to come together and, and actually create solutions to the problems that we're facing. Yeah, I'm right there with you. It's something we talk about a lot. And, you know, one of the one of the struggles that we deal with on a regular basis is, you know, we we run a small company and we come from the world of being being employees. And then, you know, our world kind of switched to being to being leaders. And everybody's talking about, you know, is hands on leadership better is hands off leadership better and it's like neither you know nothing is black or white everything is a shade of gray and um it, even when it comes down to politics it's like it's it's really hard and and the way we communicate right we communicate in sound bites in these little tiny squares where we can type you know 50 words and and we expect that to represent everything that we believe and where we're channeling our energy informs what we tell each other right unless we have a conversation it's hard for me to get to know the real you uh, unless you're pr like making this huge body of work like you have the advantage of having this creativity people can you know people can pick up a book and, and go a little bit deeper on you but for for most people i don't know them unless i can talk to them face to face and communicating in these blurbs like i'm aligned with this therefore i believe that it just doesn't lead to open communication and it's very, very, it's super frustrating. I'm curious as to how you challenge people on that. Like, let's say you go to a gig, like what's a way that you would kind of push back and then, and then resolve that tension in real time. I think it's just by uh, exploring different concepts in the poem that uh, push and pull the listener. And it's really the only way I can describe it because the rest of it is conceptual. It's about specific content that I might choose to say, but it's also about the energy and the emotion I use, the volume, the rhythm, where I choose to be in the room. Sometimes I'll come out into the audience. Sometimes I'll touch people. Not anymore, but, <laughs> um, but I would do all sorts of different things that, that would uh, hopefully get people on their guard a little bit. I also think in general, to be honest, man, you know, for me to get up in any room, unless people are expecting me or they're expecting poetry and they know what they're getting, uh, for someone to, you know, rhyme spiritual advice at you for a half an hour, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. If I was in the audience, too, I'd be like, what the fuck is this dude talking about for the first minute and a half, at least? And that's really what I see. You know, when I'm live, you know, I'm in front of a thousand people and I'll, for the first minute and a half, people are like, what is going on here? Like, do I like this guy? Like, is this enjoyable? No, I don't know if I, no, well, that was good. But yeah, I like that. I don't know if I like, no, but I do like that. Oh, and now I felt something. And now I'm thinking something. And now I'm reflecting on my life. And that, I literally watched the whole crowd move like a wave. It's really beautiful. So I pay attention to that as I'm 
you know, playing these poems and also playing the audience. Yeah, it's it's an example that you did in the book. Or there's a there's a ton of them, but one that was really kind of blatant about this is push and pull. Is you had one poem I can't remember the name, but it was kind of highlighting a lot of aspects of police brutality and aggression towards certain groups. And you kind of open and close that poem with a statement. It's like, I don't know what it feels like to put on a uniform. I don't know what it feels like to suit up and to go to work every day, basically to protect lives, risk my life for lives of people that I don't even know. And I think, I think it's really interesting and rare that people are able to see things from both perspectives and create something that, you know, resonates with a lot of people. And it doesn't even necessarily mean someone has to agree or disagree with you. It's more like a thought provoking thing. Like, huh, that's interesting. I don't know how I feel, but that's interesting. Well, we should all be asking those questions to ourselves because our life is a great adventure, Mm -hmm. a great exploration externally and internally. So in that particular piece, for example, uh, I know that the piece is going to be naive because I'm not a police officer. So, you know, and I haven't specifically faced police brutality either. Not for being a black man in America, you know, or a person of color in in New York when stop and frisk was a big thing, you know. So uh, it's gonna be an inherently naive piece. And what I wanna do is I wanna acknowledge that because I really don't know what it's like to put on a uniform. And I really thought as I was writing that piece, what it would be like to risk my life every day for a stranger, you know, and how that would impact me over five years or over 10 years. But I also tried to think about what it would be like to be profiled. Um, And a lot of my friends that I've talked to on a regular basis that have been pulled over countless times and had uh, much more rough treatment than I've ever experienced. So uh, I wanted to go into that and I wanted to hopefully give uh, a perspective to those reading it that they might not think about on both sides of the issue. And by the way, I wanna say one more thing. I think it's our responsibility to use our voices even at the risk of being naive and at the risk of being wrong. Mm, I like that. The silence is deafening. And I think that when you take your perspective and your emotion towards an issue and you use it to destroy, then you know, you're just creating more of the same. But if you take your emotion and your perspective on an issue and you use it to create and to add to the conversation, then I think we get closer to solving it. Um, And I'm okay with being naive or wrong. And I encourage everyone else to do the same because it'll get us closer to the truth. Yeah, silence is fear. It gets a transition that I I wanted to ask you in 2000, well, you've done a few, but in 2018 you did did a, a poem for Ted and you did it on, uh, you know, saving the planet, essentially. I guess it's, it might be literally called like a plea to save the planet or something of the sort. But was that, 
did you go with the intent of bringing that poem or were, were you kind of mulling over, you know, like what, what am I going to, what am I going to do with this Ted talk? I didn't, I don't know if there was a specific topic. Um, but in that same vein, like, I just want to hear more. I'm not going deeper than that. Go. <laughs> um, I definitely knew I was going to do that poem there, but I didn't write it for Ted. Right. Written it previously. I don't strategize my inspiration. So I don't look around and think what is going to be popular if I write a poem about this. I, I think that's boring actually. And I think strategizing your inspiration is one step away from manipulation. And if you're manipulating your audience, you're manipulating yourself first. So instead, I try to pay attention to when I'm inspired. And I think often that is the biggest issue. When people ask me, where do you find inspiration? I'm like, inspiration is everywhere. I guarantee you are inspired every single day, countless times. And the only issue is you haven't trained yourself to pay attention to when you're inspired. So the inspiration comes into you and then it just goes back out into the universe. But if you contain it and you decide to take that energy and put it through an artistic outlet, then you will have a direction for that inspiration. And so that's what I do. I just like pay attention to when I'm inspired, when I'm moved by something, when I'm annoyed by something, and then I will write that down. And if I start a poem in a place that is true, and I give it enough time and space, the rest of the poem will almost write itself. In that specific situation, I was in uh, Spain and I was talking to someone and they said, you know, how can something this big be invisible? And they were talking about the environment. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was such an interesting concept, you know, because the environment is huge. And it's all around us constantly, but we can't see it. And I thought, well, what would it be like if we could actually see the environment? Well, we'd have to take more personal responsibility for what we're doing to it. And so I asked him, I said, can I take that line? I really like it. I always ask. I never steal. I always say, can I, can I use that? You know, or something I'll say. Like I was talking to someone the other day and there were birds in the background on the phone. And I said, you know, birds aren't singing to win a Grammy. They're not going to go platinum. And then, and then I said, oh, that's good. And I started writing that down, you know, and that'll be the start to another poem. So I asked him and he was, he was nice enough to say yes. And then I, I took that and I, I started to write that piece. And just one more thing. It wasn't initially called the poet's plea to save the planet. We had hired someone to do marketing stuff on uh, the uh, interwebs and totally. that, that was the choice that they made, which, you know, they're, they're an awesome team, but it's not about saving the planet because the planet will be fucking fine. It's about us. You know, it's, it's about being a part of the ecosystem rather than thinking that we're above it. And it was, it was great. And it's a great poem. It was interesting to try to look, I was trying to look at the audience every time they give it a flash of the audience to see faces. Cause I really loved how you were explaining your reading of the audience as you go through that. And, and I assume Ted is one of those places where everybody's kind of ready to hear from a perspective like yours in that context. But I just was interested, like is when you deliver, is it more or less that same experience the whole way through, or is there, you know, poetry slam, everybody's ready for you. Are they hyped? But is it more or less still like that? 
Um, if I do an open mic, you know, there's a lot of snapping, there's a lot of clapping, there's a lot of cheers, there's a lot of, you know, oh, you know, yeah, like that type of thing. And then, um, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. and then if I do my shows that are like my concert experiences, they really are like that. They, they have a concert-esque feel and there's a lot of crowd participation, a lot of, uh, joke between you know self-deprecating stories and when I do the corporate environment it's different uh, but it always winds up being um, a really cool I would say uh, unique experience for everyone because they walk out feeling lit up and they walk out feeling grounded and they walk out feeling connected that TED experience was a little bit different because in TED, people definitely want to hear amazing ideas, but they're also very cerebral. Mm. So it was more difficult to drop them into their hearts than in usual shows. And uh, I want another shot at it. <laughs> oh, I was wondering about the response and how many, what people would come up and say to you afterwards. Because like the, the power of word and poetry and like you know, hip hop stuff, all that, like really well spoken and put together stories and provocative thinking is like, it's really meaningful to me. I think it's one of the coolest things people can do in the world. So yeah, it's interesting to see these just like, you know, 50, 60 year old people sitting there listening and wondering like, what are, how are they going to respond to this? Cause I would hope with an open mind, it would be really impactful and amazing and thought provoking, but you never know. I just love to be a, like a fly on the wall listening to people talk to you after that performance. You said it was a little bit trickier to get them out of their heads and drop them into their hearts and that you want another shot at it. What would change? How would you approach it differently? I think um, I was a little aggressive that day. And uh, I don't think that there was a need to be so aggressive. Mm. And by the way, it's what we were talking about before. This isn't me... Uh, you know, victimizing myself or saying, I'm not good. This is me analyzing my performance of how to connect better. Mm. Because I just want to get out of the way so that I can connect better, so that the messages of the poem are received. And yet I'll never fully be able to get out of the way because I'm always going to have my ego. My ego is a part of my humanity. So I don't want to remove my ego from, you know, I am the uh, vehicle and the obstacle in the writing and in the sharing of my work. Um, but uh, at least acknowledging that can allow me to find better ways of expressing it. And so whatever the purity of the message can actually come out and be received. You obviously have a, like a big bag of tools to, to pull from. And I think something that a, lar a lot of artists struggle from is where does the line between figuring out what's going to connect best with the people that you hope to reach versus fearing veering so far off track that you're no longer yourself? Like what keeps you locked into that focus to where you know this is true and not just a buy to get people to cheer or applause or, or feel quote unquote good, but without any substance? Yeah, well, first of all, if the writing has substance, that lasts forever or at least as long as that piece of writing is in the world. Um, so you start there. And then when you're actually performing, I have all of these tools that I can use to connect with people. And anger, by the way, is one of them. 
but there's a difference between using your tools and having your tools use you. And only you will know. I mean, how do you ever know that a boundary exists unless you crash up against it? So I think everyone is so focused on trying to be great that they forget to play. And you have to play, man. You have to be willing to be wrong. You have to be willing to crash and burn. You have to be willing to, you know, crash up against your boundaries to go beyond them and then decide I'm going to pull it back a little bit. Or, wow, I have more room in this area than I knew. And um, that's how you grow. And otherwise you would calcify as an artist or worse, as a person. You know, people all the time, they calcify, they get older, they find something they're kind of good at. You know, they get validation for that. They get paid for that. And then they just stay there in their comfortable little box that they've created for themselves. And eventually their box becomes a prison and they don't know how to get out anymore. So that was what we were talking about earlier in terms of choice. I give myself the choice to wake up tomorrow and decide that I don't want to be a poet anymore. I haven't made that choice yet. Every day I've gotten up and I've said, yeah, I'm going to do this shit for one more day at least, you know, but I give myself that choice because then I know that I'm making the choice rather than the choice making me. I feel that I have freedom in re-choosing my life every single day so that nothing I'm doing becomes an obligation. It becomes an act of free will. I wanted to ask you about the idea of forgiveness and acceptance. There is a poem in the book that kind of details your relationship with your father and or lack thereof and kind of ends up in this place to where you're like, you know, maybe he wasn't there for me at all ever. He never did these things with me that normal fathers do, but if nothing else, he gave me my life and, and that's enough. And I, I can relate to that. And I think a lot of other people can too. And what was the process like for you personally to come to a place where you're like, you know what? it's all good. I understand. I don't need his validation. And I feel like this sense of calm and like, how does that apply to the rest of your life as well? Do you want to hear the poem? Would you like me to do it? Would you? I think people will get a lot from it. It's a fucking amazing poem. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was just, uh, you know, I think the poem says a lot, but I can give you a, a brief kind of synopsis of it afterwards. But I figure if somebody brings it up, it's probably worth doing. Do it. I'm staring at the number wondering if I should call. I can hear the tick-tock from the clock on the wall as it meshes with the thump-thump beat of my heart. Sometimes getting something started is the hardest part. I didn't meet my dad until I was 15. I'd seen his photograph, but his image was sickening. A coward with the dick, but no balls to back it up. See, when he left me as a kid, I had cause for acting up. The funny thing about hate is the person you hate doesn't feel that hate. You feel that hate, but wait. The weight can be too much for a person to take, and personally, I was hurt, so I just locked it away. I was angry all the time, and I didn't know why. 
I couldn't handle my own rage, so I would hide it inside. Pretending everything was fine became a daily pastime. Time passed and I started to believe in my own lies. I took it out on my mom because she raised me alone. The rage I couldn't own had left me totally numb. It was like landmines in my mind that I didn't understand. So when the boy inside cried, the young man outside yelled. I think I learned about my masculinity from TV. The people weren't real, so I knew they couldn't leave me. I'd sit there for hours right in front of the tube. The images that I saw were my depiction of truth. It was manhood in a box, and I bought into it. The censorship of anything inside of me that's sensitive. The sentence is, a lifetime of tears suppressed in a stone face and overblown ego they've distracted through a paper chase. Back when I was nine, I imagined in my mind that my father was a spy working for the FBI, and that's why he couldn't stop by, write or drop a line. He was off saving our lives from the bad guys, but that was just a lie that I used to get by so that you wouldn't see the tears welling up in my eyes. When you're rejected by the person that you created by, you secretly feel like you don't have a right to your life. I thought if I confronted him, then it would make it all right. But since I couldn't forgive him, it just recycled my spite. I remember meeting him for the first time. Every time a person passed by, I would ask, Mom, is that him? I look a little like him, right? No? Oh. What about that guy? And that was what it was like to meet the man that gave me my life. To shake his hand and look into his eyes. We talked till he apologized, then said our goodbyes. I walked away on my own and I began to cry. Now for years after that, I acted like it was all resolved. I told him what I thought, so I figured problem solved. But it just re-evolved. My insecurities were eating at my mental health. I took it out on the world because I hated myself. That's when I finally decided I needed some help. I opened up. I started writing and sharing about my past. I got honest with myself and I started chipping at my mask. I looked into the mirror and confronted what I saw. Accepting the reflection by embracing every flaw, then directing the connection into breaking down the walls by reflecting the perfection of the God inside us all. I stopped focusing on everything that I had been hateful for, and I started focusing on everything I could be grateful for. And personally, there is a lot we can be thankful for. If pain is dragging you down, just cut the ankle cord. That's when the weight lifted and I really started living. That's when my hate shifted and I really started giving. It's when my fate twisted. It was like an ego exorcism. Your mind state can be the most powerful of prison. My father never played catch with me or gave advice. But if nothing else, that man gave me my life. 
And that's enough for me. If that is all he can ever give, because I'm appreciative for every day I get to live. And even though I don't need my dad to validate me, I thought that I should write this poem to thank him for creating me. Because every moment that we are alive is like a gift. And if that's not enough to forgive, then what is? I'm staring at the number wondering if I should call. I can hear the tick-tock from the clock on the wall as it meshes with the thump-thump beat of my heart. Sometimes getting something started is the hardest part. I pick the phone up. The dial tone begins to sing. I punch his number into it and it begins to ring. 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 Hello, Mike. Hey, man, it's... uh. It's Adam, your son. Thank you for that. Damn. <laughs> Thank you. So good. Thanks, man. And that, so the, you know, the, the poem exists in this time frame of five minutes or so. What was that like in, in real life? How, how long did that forgiveness take to kick in or to have those revelations is that a is that a long journey for you so curious yeah, it took me probably six months to make it was one of the longest pieces if not the longest piece you know in terms of time um you know, a lot of the pieces will take two weeks or two months um or two hours but this took uh took quite a long time and I think there was a point in it where I stopped and I didn't know what I wanted to say next. And I realized I had to live a little bit more. And then I went out and lived. And then all of a sudden the poem pointed me in the right direction. And then after that, it was a manifestation and I would share it with people. And I had various degrees of uh, forgiveness, but there are layers to forgiveness. And uh, the layers don't always come off when you want them to. Sometimes, you know, the layers tell you when they want to peel. <laughs> so um, I think it took me a long time to be able to really embody that. But what I've ultimately realized, and I feel that I have now, you know, I feel that it's cellular for me. And there might be another layer that I don't know about, but I feel really at peace with this part of my life. Um, but what I ultimately realized is, in practice, that there is no forgiveness without gratitude, that they are intertwined. And you have to ultimately wind up being grateful for anything that you've experienced in your life, whether or not you understand it. Understanding is overrated. And that's coming from a guy whose name is in question. <laughs> At a certain point, who cares whether or not you understand why something happened to you? There are going to be things that happen to all of us that are not ever going to make sense. But ultimately, after we go through the grieving process, we have a choice to make, which is, are we going to be victimized by it? Are we going to blame other people? Are we going to be angry at God? I mean, being angry at God is like yelling at yourself in the mirror. 
Because no matter what you say, God will be waiting for you when you are done. And we all have that choice to make. We have to decide, are we going to go those routes or are we going to find a way to be empowered by what happened to us because it made us who we are, to be grateful for it, and then ultimately to forgive anyone who has wronged us. We don't have to forget, but we have to forgive because I don't want to carry hate around for someone else. That was insightful, my friend. I like that a lot. Thank you. What, what, uh, what about this transition? Because I've just been wondering, just fire off some of those, some of those hip hop people that were inspiring to you when you were young growing up, because I just got to know, and I, I'm sure I could have looked it up, but that's not as fun. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people, but I have a really funny story to tell that I haven't told on any of these podcasts. So I'll tell it to you, but definitely like freestyle fellowship. They were a, a legendary Los Angeles band, um, Tribe Called Quest, Gangstar, J. Rue the Damager, uh, I mean, Eric B. and Rakim, KRS-One, the list goes on and on. I, you know, everyone from the Boogie Monsters to Nas. And by the way, so this is this funny Nas story that I have. So when I was like 16 and whenever, I, maybe 16, 17, Illmatic came out. Maybe I was 15. But I took a bunch of shrooms and I decided to listen to Illmatic and I put my head against the stereo and I listened to the whole album while I was tripping. And about halfway through, I had this universal realization, which was that Nas was God. I realized that Nas was God and everything made sense to me after that. And so for many years, I held on to that belief that Nas is God, right? And one of my best friends, uh, named Omari Hardwick, who's a great actor. He's, uh, he plays Ghost in Power. And, uh, and he and I came up together in the Poetry Lounge scene. I mean, we lived at each other's houses at different points, and, you know, he's family. And so we knew each other before he became famous. And at one point, I ended up going to a concert at the Palladium. And this was a legendary hip-hop concert. Okay, Queen Latifah was there. Kanye West was there. The Roots were there. Uh, Most Def and Tyler Kweli, Blackstar. Um, who else was there? Common was there. I mean, it was just an unfathomable, like, concert. And so I'm in the crowd, and I see Omari. And Omari's like, yo, what up, Q? I'm like, oh, how you doing? He's like, great. He's like, come backstage with me. So I go backstage with him. And... I hadn't hung out with him in this environment since he had really started to pop off. And every single rapper that I ever knew, knew who he was. So everyone was going up to him. All these people that were my heroes were going up to him and they were like, what up, oh? And he's like, just saying hello to them and stuff like that. So then Nas walks by, okay? And they give dap to each other. And Omari says, hey, you know, Nas gonna get a picture. So they take a picture. And then Omari walks back over to me and he goes, yo, Q, go get a picture with Nas. And Omari has always been very confident. And, you know, he would always push me into doing things that maybe I wouldn't ever normally do. So I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm going to go get a picture with Nas. So I walk over to Nas. I'm like, hey, man, Nas, I'm a big fan. I'm like, can I get a picture? And he looks at me and he just goes like this. 
And then he walks away. <laughs> so uh, I walk back over to Amari and I'm like, I'm like, damn. And he goes, what? I said, I think Nas just dissed me. And then I smiled and I said, fuck it. I just got dissed by God. <laughs> <laughs> so to this day, man, that's one of my favorite stories. It's actually better than having a picture with him. But he's the best lyricist ever, man. I mean, I know every word to that album. You know, that, that album was uh, hip-hop defining, but it also really impacted my life as well. You know, your voice, when I was listening to it, it reminded me of The Grouch. Love The Grouch. I was like, this dude sounds like The Grouch. That's kind of crazy. I don't even know what else, where else to go. How dude. much time do we just spend? It we're, feels like no time. But We're a little it's... over an hour, actually. Nice job. That was easy. Yeah, we <laughs> Wait a second. I got I got another one. I mean, you have slated a podcast coming out yourself. Yeah, that's what we put up on the thing. So we want to start one. We just I mean, look, everything got turned upside down with with uh, in the world. Right. Overnight, you know, so uh, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to move forward right now. You know, we we uh, we literally had this book drop during the height of the panic. Right. And uh, and we had, you know, a mural in L.A. and and a billboard and shows in SF and New York and um, all over Denver, Los Angeles. um, And and all of it, you know, completely disappeared. So we had to figure out a way to pivot and get the book out there because the book was medicine for me to write. And um, it's been medicine for people to read. And the responses have been unbelievable, man. Really, like I've been blown away. Hundreds and hundreds of messages we've been receiving. Um, and so people can get the book version and then they can also get the uh, audiobook, which is me reading all of the poems for two and a half hours. And uh, that I'm, I'm just unbelievably proud of, of both versions and, and excited to put them out into the world. So the answer is yes, I want to do a podcast, um, but we have not actually moved forward on it because uh, we just have to put our ducks in a row now. And, and we had so many other things that we were, were dealing with that we haven't quite done that in this moment. I got one, I got one more. This is just based on you, you busted out those two poems from heart, seemed like from mine. Is, yeah. how, many, how many of those you got just in there? Are they all in there? Yeah, I mean, I, the whole book is memorized, so that's about two hours and 20 minutes, but I have a lot more memorized as well. So I, if I started to do poetry and decided to run all of the poems together, I could probably go for four hours or something like that. I feel like that in and of itself, to be able to keep them all in, in your head and the way you deliver them is maybe a little bit of your own personal genius as is. Cause that's not, I don't think that's totally normal based on uh, a lot you know, of people I've met. As musicians I'd love to carry that compliment, but I can't because if you, if you look at any MC and you told them to just remove the music and remove the choruses, they have hours and hours and hours of lyrics memorized. Mm. And, you know, you go to a, a, a concert, Nas could perform for three hours straight easily. You know, so I think that uh, this, is, this is a skill or a muscle 
that you build over time. And then all of a sudden you go, wow, I don't, can't believe I can lift that, but I can. It's good perspective. Well, I like it. Thanks. What's just a, a snippet of advice that you could offer to someone? I mean, the whole past hour has been amazing, incredible advice in, in terms of just getting, I talked to so many people who just can't get started. And even you said on the, in the father time poem, it's like sometimes getting started is the hardest part for someone who's got an idea, has a change that they want to make, sees a different like version that the world could be like, what, what would you offer them? Well, I think it relates to this time period, you know, for a person to make a systemic change in their life, they usually have to face some sort of a trauma because a trauma will shake them up out of their normal routine and their normal pattern and allow them to see th their lives from a different perspective. And in that window of time, they have an opportunity to make real shift. And if they do, that shift can last for the rest of their lives. But if they don't, they might not get another opportunity for 10 years. You know, 10 years could pass by before they have another opportunity to access that perspective on their life. And I think that an individual is like a collective. And this is our collective opportunity because of this trauma that we're all facing to make systemic change. And I think we have a responsibility as people to do that. And we have a responsibility as humanity to do that. But uh, we have to start within ourselves first. So, um, look, the world is upside down right now. So take this time. You know, it's a luxury to quarantine. <laughs> if you can quarantine, you are crushing it right now, no matter how difficult it is, because a lot of people don't know where their next meal is coming from, or they're literally losing loved ones, or, you know, they don't know how they're going to keep a roof over their head. And so if you have time, use this time really wisely to look at your life and decide, are you living the life that you want to live? Because, you know, 10 years will pass by before we know it. And the last thing I'll say is this, particularly with this pandemic, it's not an existential threat. It's unbelievable amounts of pain and suffering, but there will be an end to this. They'll find a vaccine. If humanity falls asleep again, we're going to wake up in 25 years to the existential threat of climate change. And it won't be reversible. It won't be like, oh, you know, we're not driving anymore in Los Angeles. So it's the skies have cleared up. You're not going to be able to reverse the ice caps melting. And at that point, we are going to deal with something that we might not be able to come back from. So I hope that we're all using this time to look at our lives and to look at the fact that, you know, our economy is based on profiting off of the suffering of people and the planet and it's unsustainable. Thank you for that. Yeah. I feel like that's a great that's, way. That's a good answer. Bad boy. Dude, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. It mm -hmm. is amazing. I got, I got to be straight. I didn't know cause I'm not in that world. So I didn't know anything about you at all until Alex hit us up and I was like, okay, cool. Uh, check this out and got the book. And I was like, I, I didn't know what kind of world I was in for. You know, I didn't, I didn't understand. I, 
to be honest, my gut feelings were like poetry. I don't know about that. Like it seemed so unfamiliar and like the picture that popped into my head wasn't what the reality was. So <clears throat> thanks for the work. Like it's, it resonates with me in an incredible way. And I think it resonates with like culture as a whole and yeah, I'm, I'm fucking hyped to recommend it to people, not just because we're on this podcast together, but because it just, <clears throat> it literally gave me energy. And I was like, yes. fuck yeah, dude. Fuck yeah. We, <laughs> I told my wife about it. I'm like, you got to listen to this guy. And I'm like <clears throat> playing it for her in the morning. And she's like, what is this? And I'm like, just listen. <laughs> I want to give a big shout out to Alex because Third Door is an amazing book. He's one of my best friends. And I appreciate him setting us up together in, in the first place. And he was a real uh, influential person for the book. He helped me come up with uh, some of the conceptual through lines and the core of them were really from a lot of the advice that Alex gave me. So he, he deserves a lot of credit. I honor him. It's so cool when you can kind of connect these change and like someone changes your life and introduce you to another person who has these earth shattering ideas. And look, I, I've seen the people that you've been podcasting with. There's some big, like big motherfuckers. So I really like, we appreciate your time. It's cool. Like, it's, yeah, thank it's you. amazing. No, I really, I really enjoyed this guys. I got a message this morning from this woman who said that every night her 11 year old has been asking uh, for the audiobook to be played to him before he goes to sleep. And, you know, she was just saying how unbelievably moving it is. And, I've been getting things from military people all around the world that they've been cry they cried for the first time in 25 years. You know, the responses have just been really, really insane. And that's my dream, man. I want little kids to go eight year olds to say, I want to be a poet when I grow up. Yes. You know, so hopefully this is just a small part of that, that way to change how people perceive it because the reality of what poetry is and what it can be is, is transformational. Dude, respect. Feeling it, all shit. of it. Thank you. Fuck yeah. Well, shit, I dude, I think we're good. That was cool, man. How have you been personally with this whole thing? I'm good. You know, everyone has their own set of challenges. Everyone. It's like that two that what we were talking about earlier, like keeping two truths in your head at the same time. It's like I have it way better than most people. I'm really, really blessed. And also, there are a certain number of challenges that, that I'm dealing with. And I'm also going inside to, to think, are there ways that I need to change? Because um, this is just some, some crazy shit. I mean, no one's ever experienced something like this who's alive. So what about you guys? Uh, it's been a pretty big catalyst for just myself and Jared, like our communication, honestly. It, um, it, I mean, we've known each other for a really, really long time, been working together for since... The business isn't this old, but we've been working together since like 2009 and it kind of forced us to have some conversations that we were not really willing to have at other times. And it's put us on a path towards, I think, doing like amazing things and getting clarity on some shit that we really needed to get clarity on. So in that setting, like that's been a blessing. It's fucking the hard part is you can't see each other. <laughs> And that's not just for us, but like we had, you know, 60 or 70 people on staff and you hear these stories. And when you realize that you're the guy that has to tell your company like, hey, we don't have shifts for you, that that's kind of a fucked up feeling like. But I mean, 
honestly all in like maybe this is selfish for me but it's just my truth is that like I think this time is going to be one of the things that I need more than anything like I don't know anybody who is personally hurting my family is safe and like sure that is maybe short-sighted but I'll take it for for what it is like big ups to anybody who's hurting so I'm I feel lucky and just lucky to be able to have this time yeah yeah I mean for me it's it's similar what he said about the communication is key and really awesome I I'm a little bit of an opportunist and so right before we started our company there was this what was it three-ish months I was our family was homeless homeless meaning we were traveling from house to house to stakes we couldn't afford to live in Santa Cruz before we started our business Mm -hmm. and there's kind of nothing more beautiful than that like cocoon where you're literally unable to do anything else you're kind of stripped away and you get to just look at everything with that that mix right and it's non-dualistic where it's like i can't do anything but on the other side of this i can do everything and i gotta figure out what everything is to me and the people that matter around me and how i'm gonna affect that and we have this business we have each other i have a we both have family but i have two daughters my wife and it's just i don't know it's just this whole moving living thing that i kind of get excited about potential and when everything gets stripped away all you have left is potential and i love that so it's not easy you know no one ever changes unless the environment changes that's really the reality is if the environment was perfect you would never make any change you would just be like it's perfect why would i do anything different yeah so uh everyone is now adapting because the environment has forced us to do that but there's going to be some amazing uh, new things that come out of that and amazing opportunities that are like a phoenix from the ashes are going to come out of the pain uh, that that everyone is feeling or the discomfort that everyone is feeling. So it's exciting and it's scary, Yeah, but it's, it's now. I'm definitely going to come see you sometime perform, man, because I... I used to I used to try I used to write in a way that I was this I'd call it trying to be your style and I stopped because of insecurity but I really enjoyed it. I had a couple people who tried to encourage me to keep t- I know. Dude, dude, I I had issues though and I'm still Everybody like, has issues. That's that Oh, such a Nobody who doesn't have issues. I know. I just didn't have those people telling me that I should do it. I had one girl who was like all about it and uh, she slept with my roommate after she slept with me and it was like, oh, well, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't do this. So. <laughs> Look, don't, don't allow her choices to get in the way of uh, your truth. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, uh, I think that actually this is for anybody who's listening too. you know, <laughs> you don't have to do something for a living to do something. There's amazing benefits that come from the outlet of creating something. And so if you want to write a poem, it doesn't mean that you have to like become a full-time poet. It just means you have to choose something that's moving and meaningful to you and explore it through a poem. And it doesn't even have to rhyme, just intend it to be a poem and it's a poem and then find someone in your life that you can share it with. Because that is the process of alchemy. It's taking something that you're thinking or feeling and creating rather than destroying. Man, we had a whole talk on how in this new economy, the idea of having a hobby or the idea of doing something just because it makes you smile has been 
lost largely with everyone's effort to, you know, try to monetize everything. And it is, it like hurts. It's like, you can't just do something just because it's like, Oh man, I'm really into like, you know, working on my car gives me like this sense of Zen. It's like, well, cool. You're going to start a YouTube channel and like get some ads going and get the revenue. And it's kind of fucked up and it's super, it's, it's stressful. Well, now nobody really is able to define themselves in the same way that they used to, or most people aren't at least, because where are, are you what you do if you're not doing it anymore? Well, then who are you? You know, who, who am I if I'm not who I am? And I think that then you can say, well, what am I actually interested in? Or what am I curious about? Or what am I enthusiastic about? Or even what am I passionate about? Because your passion will lead to your purpose. But some people are not even able to figure out what they're passionate about or what their purpose is. Or, but you can, you can look around and say, what am I curious about? And then just follow that and see where it takes you. How am I not myself, dude? You Huckabees to me. <laughs> uh, well, shit, that was man. such a good conversation, man. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much Thanks. for your time. Yeah, appreciate both of you. And I look forward to connecting on the other side of this in person. We can celebrate life together.